Welcome to Fran Path Consulting Podcast. I'm Sam Schweitzer. And I'm Brittany Bodie. And together we are Fran Path Consulting. Hello, Jamie Major. How are you? Sam, I'm doing great. How are you today? I'm doing well. This is our second podcast together this week, which is very weird. I'm used to recording with Britt all the time. And so I'm excited. Here we find ourselves on the same podcast, just the two of us again. But this time we have a guest. We do. It's fun. Yes. So, you know, it's kind of funny. This week has been super, super busy with everything. And I think spring picks up in franchising. We just see people kind of getting either having to pay into taxes and starting to say, what the heck else could I do <laughs> as I'm paying into taxes? What could mitigate my liability to the United States slash state government? I do think that we definitely see a lot of folks saying, I'm tired of this, paying this much in. And I know that my skill set is transferable. So we're busy, busy doing that. And then busy with clients who kind of kicked off the new year wanting something new for themselves and they're winding down their process and kind of heading to some of those discovery days right now and and making decisions on is franchising right for them definitely had a lot of clients that um delayed during the the holiday season and so when they pick back up in january february now they're getting to that to the decision time of of are they really going to do this or not this is an exciting time for the individuals that are getting into it as they're really putting the rubber to the road and and uh seeing the light that there is a better way to have an uh, investments other than real estate or stock market or things like that it's, it's super exciting yeah, thinking outside the box is definitely key. And we have a lot of clients who I can't count the clients that have said to me, I never thought I would own a franchise. And I always say, well, if you t show me the third grader that's sitting there saying, I want to be a franchisee when I grow up, I'll write that little girl or guy a check because <laughs> there definitely aren't that many of them. So nobody thinks they're going to grow up to be a franchisee. But it's definitely something that I think is such a viable option for investments and as a career path, certainly. And Discovery Day is kind of that cherry on top. And when we prepare people that are making a decision, you know, being awarded a franchise is a huge undertaking. And they're really going there to have that gut check. Is this a group that I really like? Do I trust them? Do I love the vision that they have? Do I think they're going to grow in a way that I think is stable in the next decade? Do I trust these people with my investment? And so having a discovery day is the culmination of all of the hard work that they do with us in the process, certainly. I just had that conversation this morning with a client that's getting ready to go to a discovery day. And he was, he was talking through some of the what he should be looking for and how he should act honestly and how he shouldn't act. And he had a connection of his that was denied a franchise uh, through the process. So it was yeah. a nice reminder that franchising is awarded and it's a mutual evaluation for the investor, meaning the potential franchisee to look at it as an investment of the right culture, the right people, the right processes. It's not just because you can fog a mirror and write a check that you can own a business. And, and I, a brand that tells me that they don't, you know, they have never turned somebody down at a discovery day. They've awarded basically anybody coming through. That's a brand I don't want to work with. That's a brand I don't trust. There appears to be no vision. There's really nothing 
that they could tell me besides we've never turned anybody down that you can't change my mind once you've said that. And so I think sometimes it's great. I'm glad that your client has an experience with a friend who said I was turned down. We always say it's a job interview. You want to go in there and you really want to show the franchisor that you're capable of ownership in a market because that's truly what it is. You're a business owner. It's not an affiliate. It's not an affiliate. It's not an employee. They can't just replace you overnight. They have to really trust that also our clients are going to be the best person to grow XYZ market across the United States. And if they don't feel that way, not everybody is awarded a franchise. So I, I think it's, you know, it's been an exciting time of the year. I think we franchise that comes up constantly for us. I mean, I talk about this franchise once a day when people think of franchising, I get typically two brands. I get McDonald's and I get Chick-fil-A and we have a friend of yours, a former mentor, mentor, I guess, still not a former mentor, because some of the stuff you're telling me, Jamie, you're like, this is what I learned. This is where I learned it. And it's been from Dr. Elizabeth Chapman, who is the principal program lead in the Kathy family offices. Thank you so much for joining us today, Beth. We really appreciate you being here. Thank you, Sam. And it's great to see you again, Jamie. I know it's been a few years since we've talked, but it's great to see you. You too. You were a wonderful professor and left a solid impact um, through my MBA program personally. And uh, it's great to stay in touch with you and, and continue to learn from you. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. So we obviously met when I was going through MBA program at Mercer and, and we had a lot of professors and I have stayed in touch with a couple of them. You clearly being one of them and, and always appreciate the time, but can you walk us through your history um, and your background and how you led from adult academia over to now with the Chick-fil-A and the, in the Kathy family? Sure. So most of my career uh, was almost a 20 year career in higher education, but that is not at all where I envisioned my life to be. Um, I fully expected to be a pediatric cardiologist. So had expected to be a doctor. My family expected all of that all the way through, you know, childhood into young adulthood, um, even through my undergraduate degree. I had a business background and then a lot of pre-med classes. So I wanted to go to med school and applying to med school. I wanted to show not only could I do the medicine, but I could run a business. And so I'd graduated from undergrad. I had a business management degree and, you know, was starting to prepare for the MCATs and worked with a physician for a little while loved medicine, loved what he did, but had this epiphany of one day I want a family and I want to be able to balance all of that. So I think there's a struggle in that. So then I was just at, at a loss because I didn't know what I was going to do. You know, this had been my plan my whole life. And so I thought, well, you know, I've got this business degree. Let me go get my MBA. So I went and I got my MBA from Georgia State University and I focused on human resource management and organizational behavior. So the people side of business and that had always appealed to me. And went and worked as an HR journalist for a little while with a manufacturing firm and had a, an undergraduate professor that I'd stayed in contact with. He was one of my mentors. And he said, have you ever thought about teaching college? And I said, no, you know, it's never been on my radar and I didn't have my doctorate degree. He said, well, you've got work experience. You have your MBA. Why don't you come interview for this lecturer position? So that was back in 2003. And I went and interviewed and they hired me. And so I taught my first class that fall and I fell in love with it. It was never on my radar. Um, serendipitously happened. 
and absolutely enjoyed it and loved it. And so I did that for several years full time at the University of West Georgia and thought, you know, if I'm going to stick with this, I need to go the last leg of the race. So I went back to school at Georgia State University and pursued my PhD full time. And so that focus was on org behavior and human resources as well. And particularly, I had an affinity for negotiation. So uh, I had to do a little bit of negotiating, even when it came to getting into that program. They're very selective and it's a very competitive process to get into the program. And negotiation had been a class I had taken many years prior in my MBA program, and I loved it. And so it was fascinating to me, very practical, something that we use all the time. And so that's what I focused on for my dissertation. After I finished that, I was hired at Mercer University for the past. I had been there for almost 10 years. So I was an associate professor. And right in about middle of last year, I started to get this pull and I couldn't quite explain it of, of wanting to still have my toe in, in industry. And so I just happened to look, had a friend of mine that worked at Chick-fil-A and I just asked about his experience there and he mentioned how much he loved it. And so Chick-fil-A was one of the companies that always served as a benchmark company within my classes on great leadership, great culture, great efficiency. And so, you know, when a company comes up enough, I thought maybe if I do this, this would be the one company I would go back for. So long story short, there was a position in learning and development that had quite a bit of substance to it. And I applied for it. They have a, a very strenuous interview process. So after multiple interviews over several months, I was able to get that role. And so now I work in the Kathy family office and I'm the learning and development principal program lead for the Kathy family. And it's been a wonderful transition. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited about my role. Can you tell us what your role encompasses? Because it doesn't translate the same way CMO or, you know, right. about that. Could you just tell us a little bit about what you do in the Kathy family office? Yes, absolutely. There are several family businesses that have family offices, but not all family businesses do that. And so this role that I have was actually brand new. So I'm, I'm the first one in this role, which is exciting, but can be a little bit um, in intimidating and daunting at the same time. So it's truly a blank piece of paper, but I, I enjoyed that and I wanted the challenge. And so as a principal program lead, I focus on three main areas. The first is learning and development of the current generation of, of Kathy family members and then incoming generation um, that they're starting to hit adulthood. But the idea is that we make sure that the family has all the tools and resources necessary to run a family enterprise. And then the other part of what I do is part of family governance. And so they want to make sure they have different committees and, and, and councils set up and other family businesses have done this as well, but there's a lot of research that supports that having these structures um, continue, will continue uh, to prove successful and, 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 you know, end up with companies that have longstanding family businesses because it provides voice and decision making for the family. So it's processes for doing all of that. And then the last part of what I do is communication and dealing with the family. So as you can imagine, as the family gets bigger, communication can become an issue, right? And so figuring out the best methods of communication and what we want to communicate across the different um, family entities and family enterprises. And so that's been kind of the three legs of the stool, if you will, for my role. 
but it is truly a, a blank piece of paper. And so it's, it's something that we've kind of built from the ground up. And so I'm, I'm just really getting my feet under me because I started at the end of about middle of last year, I would say. Congrats on that. That's an awesome transition. Thank you, Thank you so much. So there's a couple things that I heard there. One is culture, efficiency, business success, process. I heard a lot of key things there that you talked about. And Chick-fil-A is one of those franchises that our clients bring up a lot. People, when you, when I say that I own franchises, people say, why don't you own a Chick-fil-A? And Chick-fil-A is not a business that we can typically place people in. And it's a, it's a very unique type of franchise. And what I'm curious from your perspective is what do you see? So you talked about culture, efficiency, process, business success. What do you see in there that Chick-fil-A does special that other franchisors can learn from and, and follow suit with? So I think it goes back to, you know, the, the founder and, and wanting to have this culture of care. And, and that resonates not just with what you see in the restaurants. It truly is at the, the support center. And we call it the support center, which I think even the terms that they use is very important. You know, uh, having a wonderful family that wants to keep the organization private within the family, they have a bit more control than than companies that are that are public. And so they want to ensure that that culture of care and their values that they want all of their employees to, you know, care and love on your your customers. But they do that even with their employees. And I strongly believe if you take care of your employees, they'll take care of your customers. And so, and this is not just lip service. I mean, I have seen firsthand from working there, you know, even within my Kathy family office, there's, there's this feeling of, of being part of a family. And so the, the family themselves, the Kathy family, when you're eating lunch or, you know, they're the first ones to say, can I take your trash for you? So they truly believe in the second mile service and they want to know your name. They want to know how things are going in your family. So it is not just something that you hear. It's something that's actually practiced there. And so it makes me want to be a better person, you know, at work and at home. And so if, if there's a loss in your family, they're the first ones to call you and see how you're doing. So it truly just resonates. So I think it started with the, fa the founder. The family encompasses those values as well. And then it just it's resonates throughout the rest of the culture. And so when you are selective and have a very, you know, I mean, it's a very extensive process to become a, an operator there. They want to make sure Jim Collins has a great book. Good to great. We may have read that in your class. I can't remember. I know I have it in my human capital class that I used to teach. But, you know, it's it's really big on getting the right person in the right seat on the right bus in the right direction. And I think that that is something that they are so intentional about and all the details of what you see at the support center and in their in their restaurants um, just further, you know, support all of that. Walking the walk is so important and so many brands and companies, you know, whether they're franchisors or massive corporate entities talk a lot about what the culture is like and how they're going to operate. And there's a vision and it's, it's easy to keep a vision when there's 10 people in an organization, you can be very selective, but to be the size of a Chick-fil-A and to have the massive amount of reach that they do and still reach out to employees about things and still take trash away from people. I mean, that is how it's done is just in that very, very little things that you see day to day. And 
when we talk to brands, that's something we always try to gather from them is what's the vision and who do you see executing on that? Certainly. Now you spent the bulk of your career, not in franchising. Right. You spent it in higher ed. And so as you kind of look at this and this culture and how this brand has really built what it's built, almost as an outsider, you're really coming in, not as somebody that's been there for so long. And so I think it, a fresh set of eyes is always fantastic. How do you think that other brands can build corporate culture and build their environment and what they really want to be? Because if there's a brand that tells you they don't want to emulate something about Chick-fil-A, they're a liar. <laughs> you know, I think every brand has something that that the Kathy family has done that they would like to emulate in their company. How do you think they can do that through ongoing education? through focusing on things with their leadership team, if you were giving franchisors out there or business owners some advice on that, do you think there's a way that they can they can go ahead and just emulate what the Kathy family has done? Sure. I think that, you know, this kind of goes back to strategy 101. You know, you always tell folks you want to create your mission statement, your purpose statement. And so the purpose statement of Chick-fil-A has been something that the family very strongly believes in, obviously, and and anyone that comes and works in the organization, they understand. Um, And so I think having a very strong purpose and then everything that you do, all your practices should stem from that and reinforce that. And so um, and I think that 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 makes sense, too, when you're thinking about the type of franchise that you think that you want to go into. You know, I remember a long, long time ago, I won't date myself, but when I was in undergraduate school, I took a strategy course and I remember thinking I wanted to study and open up a Krispy Kreme franchise because Krispy Kreme had this cult-like following. And every time there was a grand opening, you know, all these people would show up for it. And we didn't have one in our town. And I thought, well, it would do great here. And so, you know, you kind of look at the window dressing and you see all the, the positive and the upside of it. But there's a lot more that goes into it. I knew nothing about their internal, you know, what their their true mission was or any of that. It was just, I looked at more of the superficial things related to it. And so when it comes to culture, you know, one of the things I used to study quite a bit was what gives someone a competitive advantage, a sustained sustained competitive advantage at that. And so there's a lot of research on that. I won't get into the nerdy side of it, but, you know, some of it's that it can't be imitated. Well, if you think about some of the things that Chick-fil-A does, you know, one of the things that we always talk about, it's my pleasure. Right. And so that was something that took about 10 years to actually catch on. So Truett Cathy had started that many, many years ago and it didn't just click. So it was something that he was very intentional about. You know, he reiterated it. And so even those kinds of things, and even now when you look at whether it's Instagram or some social media, there's, you know, some cute influencers that create these videos about Chick-fil-A. And I remember one I saw not long ago was this gentleman. He he looked like he worked at the restaurant. He was running after this lady in her car and she's like, what's going on? And she stops her car and he said, ma'am, you said thank you about five blocks back. And I didn't have a chance to say it was my pleasure. <laughs> and, you know, we kind of laugh about that, but the thing is, that's what people know Chick-fil-A to be is this exceptional, exceptional customer service, you know, experience, not just the food, but just the experience. And so I think when your brand becomes notoriously attached to treating people well, that that is culture. Right. And so it's not just something that we put on a billboard or it's not just a tagline. It's something that your employees feel. It's something that your customers feel. So it's truly authentic. 
And that is a source of competitive advantage because, you know, other companies could say it's my pleasure. And I think some are, are starting to do that, but it's all those pieces combined that further support that, that purpose statement for the organization. So to your point, you can't just say stuff. You've got to, you got to walk the walk and in your values, I think, you know, obviously have to align for all of that to fit well together. I'd love that so much. That's so accurate. If I've said it one time, I've said it a hundred times. We coach our clients not to focus on the product, the service, or the widget when they're looking at a franchise. Is you look at the system behind the scenes, look at the culture behind the scenes, look at the look at the infrastructure behind the scenes, and the way that they treat their customers, the way that they treat their vendors. There's so much more than serving chicken sandwiches. It's it's that's honestly. Uh, you might see it differently, but that's probably the least of what they do. It's really right. about creating an experience and creating a culture that is sustainable. And that's what gives a business like Chick-fil-A the, the competitive advantage. And there's so many of these franchises out there that, um, you know, to different flavors and different styles. But the product, the service, the widget may not personally get me excited, but the culture behind the scenes does. And it's, it's, right. it's exciting there. Well, and even uh, Truett Caddy, this is one of the things that stood out to me. He says, you know, we're not in the chicken business. We're in the people business. And and I believe that 100%. They just happen to sell great food. You know, the chicken sandwich is what they're known for but originally. But I think now they're more known for just this brand of care. And so I think that that has catapulted their success significantly. And it is. It's truly authentic all the way through your your operators and your support staff, at the, the support center, and then obviously the family. And so it's, it's an honor to be able to work with them as the family expands and the enterprise continues to grow. The, the family is very intentional about making sure that the family continues to uphold that that corporate purpose. And so to get to be a part of that is is a dream come true that I never imagined I would have the opportunity to be part of. But it's it's pretty cool, to say the least. <laughs> That's so awesome. Let's go back to when I was sitting in your class at Mercer. And one of the things, and I learned a lot in through grad school and some of it I'll never touch again. And some of it I will carry with me for a long time and I use it on a regular basis. So one of the things that I did carry with me and it was from your class was Zopa um, through negotiations, which you've talked about today. And I think in life, marriage, and certainly in business, there's a negotiations in everything. So you're what I would certainly consider a negotiations expert. And I would, if your husband listened to this, God bless them and your kids, because they probably can't get one past you. But what, what advice do you have around negotiations and Zopa that you can share with prospective entrepreneurs, business owners, franchisors, franchisees, just the general audience here that, that they can take away from it? So to go all the way back to your original statement, I absolutely love negotiation because it truly is something that we do almost every day, personally, professionally. You know, a lot of times when you hear the word negotiation, you think about buying cars, selling your house, those kinds of things. But it's so much more than that. A couple of great books. Uh, Chris Voss has a very popular one out right now called Never Split the Difference. He, he was an FBI you know, hostage negotiator. Um, I use a book called Getting More by Stuart Diamond. Um, Getting to Yes is a great book. But when it comes right down to it, negotiation is communication with an outcome. So anytime you need something, but you can't do it solo, you can't get it on your own, you are having to negotiate, right? So who's going to cook dinner tonight? Who's going to pick up the kids? When we were going through the pandemic and we were having to homeschool our children, you know, who's going who's gonna to take care of math today and who's going to make dinner tomorrow, you know, or tonight, whatever it may be. So we're constantly negotiating. 
And when it comes to ZOPA and what ZOPA stands for is zone of possible agreement. So it's a very technical term we use in negotiation, but essentially what it is in a nutshell in layman's terms. Anytime you have a quantitative issue, you have what we call a target point, what you're hoping to get. And you also have a resistance or reservation point, which is what we consider to be your bottom line. Right. So if you're a buyer, you're not willing to buy above this price. If you're a seller, you're not willing to sell below this price. That's your bottom line. And that's just one quantitative issue. It could be delivery time, you know, um, quantity ordered. So whatever it may be, you have resistance points and target points for all of those issues. And so what the ZOPA is, is the zone of possible agreements is the overlap and both parties resistance point. So when we negotiate, we hope to land in that zone of possible agreements, because what that means is if there's overlap in our resistance points, neither one of us has done what we said we wouldn't do from the beginning is settle outside of that resistance point. So we are coming up with an agreement that we both can live with, right? And so that doesn't necessarily mean that you're you're going to land at your target point every time because negotiation is, as they say, about give and take. But it's a decision where both of us can live with it and, and walk away and feel like we've been treated fairly. So when it comes to Zopa, how do you get into that? Well, preparation is key. I always say, have you ever gone to the grocery store without a list? And a lot of times you have. Right. And so we can be suboptimal. Well, negotiations are very similar because. We think negotiation is about substance, but what we know is that most negotiations are successful because of how you treat people in the process. Only about 8% is really about the issues. Um, and so when you bog down on the issues, you kind of lose the forest for the trees. And it's more about them than it is you. Now, I know you're trying to accomplish your goals, but what we tend to do when we're not trained in negotiation is focus on me, myself, and I, right? Here's what I want and the 50,000 reasons why I want that. Whereas if you think about all the times you've said yes to someone, it's usually because you felt like you could trust them. They asked about your interests. They were curious about what your wants were. And so we had this tendency to do more talking and negotiation than question asking. And you need to analyze the other party. Perfectly okay to ask questions like, you know, what matters most to you in this particular situation? And here's what matters more to me. So in any kind of what we call integrative negotiation, you can have different types of issues. You can have uh, compatible issues, which is those are things you absolutely agree to 100 percent. You both want the same thing and you're good with it. You can have what we call a trade off issues. So something that matters a whole lot to you doesn't matter that much to another party and vice versa. Those are trade offs. Hey, I'd be willing to give you 100 percent of what you want if you'd be willing to give me 100 percent of what I want. And then finally, we do tend to have what we call distributive issues, which tend to be a little bit more competitive, right? So we both want it to the same extent, but we're on opposite ends of how we benefit from that. So it's a little bit more of a tug of war. But in the end, if we both can walk away with an agreement that we can live with, and this gets to sometimes where ego gets in, into play and, you know, it's, it's my way or the highway. I want 100% of what I want or I'm willing to walk back in a lot of cases to something much worse off than I could have made any deal with you. And that's where we have to be able to, you know, training helps with that. Um, and when it comes to negotiation, having the right questions, planning in advance and understanding it's not just about you. You know, um, we want to make sure that the other party feels like they're getting a great deal, too. I, for one, would like my kids to take 
lesson in Zopa. I think that they are out of the zone of possible agreement this time, <laughs> or we are. So I do remember my dad did not partake in it. He's also a federal agent. And he would usually say this is a dictatorship, not a democracy. Mm-hmm. So at home, so there is no negotiation. Right. But I was thinking about that. Sometimes I think people unintentionally engage in it. And some people are very natural negotiators. It's like kind of you were speaking through that. And thank you for sharing that. I think some people do just kind of slide into it very naturally that they they're naturally curious. They naturally want everyone to have a positive outcome. And then, like you said, ego gets involved with a lot of folks, especially people that are used to getting their way in a lot of scenarios. And at the end of the day, it can block the effort that they and the desired outcome that everybody would have. So as we think of business owners, large, small, you know, franchise or not franchise, How can they capitalize on Zopa when they're negotiating with employees, with customers, vendors? How do you see that being part of their everyday? I think one thing is to make sure, again, preparation is key and truly knowing what the underlying issues are. And so um, we sometimes have this tendency to negotiate positions rather than underlying interests. So, Jamie, you'll remember this story. It's one of my go-tos, but I think it really helps to exemplify what we have a tendency to do. So there's a story about two teenage daughters that are fighting over an orange and the mom gets tired of of them fighting. So she takes the orange and she cuts it in half. She gives one half to one daughter and the other half to the other daughter. Interestingly, one daughter could have cared less about the inside of the orange. She wanted the outside. She needed the zest to bake a cake. Whereas the other daughter, all she wanted was the inside. She was hungry. She wanted the, the orange, right? And so that tends to happen in negotiation. We're very positional as opposed to understanding true underlying interests, the why as to what, why you want things. And so in the case of our, our twin daughters, you know, they gave up half of, of what they wanted because they talked about positions. I want the orange. No, I want the orange as opposed to why they wanted it. And if they had talked about that, they would have had 100 percent of what they wanted. And so we see this in all kinds of ways in our political system and all kinds of things where we think we're you know, bipolar in terms of our wants and desires. But if we get down to the meat and potatoes of it, we, we might realize we agree on a little bit more and, and that our whys are a little bit different. So we're not having to split up the resources as much as we thought. Um, And again, having those questions in advance. So they say that by planning, you increase your outcomes just by 25 percent. You're 25 percent more efficient. And and I think that that's one area where we can do better. We tend to go into negotiations and we just wing it, you know. And so whether we're dealing with employees, knowing the issues that you want to negotiate ahead of that negotiation, having questions in advance, prioritizing and ranking your priorities from most to least important Um, So that, you know, if you have to make concessions, you can start at the bottom of that list if you have to. And then, you know, try to reserve the things that matter more to you, um, maybe not having to give away as much in those areas. But you might be surprised what having questions of others can do, and it can get them to talk a lot more. So one of the things Chris Voss talks about is having calibrated questions, right? So we have a tendency when we're asking questions to ask yes or no questions. And so we want to get more out of more information out of the other party. So he talks about calibrated questions. So questions like how, what, right? So that gets the other party talking a little bit more so that you truly get more information about what matters most to them, what their priorities are. 
so many memories from grad school now. It's all coming back. It's such coming a good back. But I still use, I mean, I still use the lessons from specifically Zopa and, and yeah, yeah. the fundamentals around it and everything from, um, you know, in business and kids and marriage. And, you know, when Sam and I get into an argument about something, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I pull it, I pull those cards back out, but it's been great. I mean, that, awesome. that's truly Thanks. some lessons that, that I, I've carried with me for a long time. Well, that's What's, um, What's some advice that you can share? Maybe the best piece of advice that you've received that you can share with um, other people, specifically entrepreneurs and business owners. I would say the best piece of advice I've ever gotten was make sure you're running your own race. And that one has stuck with me because I think that, you know, particularly in this world of social media, no matter how old we get, I know there's a lot of research for young people on the effects of comparing ourselves to other, but we, we do it even as adults, you know, and older adults. And so I think when you run your own race, that's been the biggest thing for me is don't try to be just like someone else. It's okay to, to, you know, have mentors and, and things that you admire in other people, but their story is different than yours. And, and you see a certain version of that. You don't know what all went into that too. So run your own race. Um, don't be afraid to ask for help. Always think about learning and, and don't feel like you've, you've learned everything there is. You know, one thing that I admire, uh, Dan Cathy, when I first met him, he has uh, his name tag and, and underneath it, it says in training. And, you know, he's obviously very successful, but I have so much admiration for that because he says, he says, you know, I'm always learning. And that was one of the appeals to me was to go into an industry, even though I had studied management for a long time, family businesses are, are a completely different animal, you know, and so there was a lot for me to learn there and I'm, I'm still learning. So I think always being open to learning. There's there's something called a the boiled frog syndrome. I don't know. Have you ever heard of that? I might have talked about this in my class. So um, don't recommend that you try it. But the theory goes that if you, you have um, a frog and you put a frog in boiling water, it'll jump out, right? But if you have a frog and you allow it to be in room temperature water and over time that water heats up, Unfortunately, the frog would stay in there and, and boil to death. Now, again, this is I don't recommend trying it out. This is part of the, the theory. But the, the notion is that we sometimes get complacent when we're successful. And I think that that's another thing is just don't get so comfortable that you think the world can't overtake you, you know, particularly when it comes to your businesses, always be innovative. And I think we've seen plenty of opportunity and plenty of examples where companies and even industries have faltered because they've they've been at the top of their game and they thought I'll always be there. And so um, always be innovative, run your own race. Those are probably the two biggest ones. And I'll give one more example of a, a company that I think was it's really interesting how they they took something that they did well and they had to re rethink how to use it. So and I learned about this about 20 years ago. So Remington, I'm sure you're familiar with the brand Remington. So what do you know Remington to be? What are some of the products that you associate them with today? Shotguns. Okay. Anything else? Like men's, ele men's electric shavers, things like that, right? Okay. So Remington started out as, you know, they were a typewriter company. And so they, their thing was they could make small motors. And, um, and I didn't realize that because when I thought about Remington, I didn't think about um, 
you know, firearms, I thought more about men shavers and those kinds of things, electric shavers. And so when they started to see that the typewriter was no longer, you know, going to be a viable product anymore, they had to kind of rethink what can we use small motors for? And so they got into men shavers and things like that. So always thinking about what's on the horizon and, and we don't have a crystal ball we can't predict, but we definitely don't need to be, um, ignorant to the fact that changes are happening all around us and just assume our, our brand is loyal. You know, we have loyal customers. I mean, eventually even those folks go and, and, you know, go on to the next bigger, better thing sometimes. And so I think constantly being innovative is, is definitely something you need to think about. I completely agree. I think, you know, as we, I think back to being in brick and mortar nutrition in 2010, which sounds like a dinosaur farm right now. <laughs> if somebody said that's the franchise they wanted to open, I would say, I, I don't know that that's our best bet. Have you heard of Amazon? But if you would have told me then that somebody would order supplements that they would ingest through the internet and they wouldn't even know who was shipping it out, they wouldn't even care, I would say we are absolutely in no danger <laughs> of right. somebody doing that. Who would ever? order a, a protein powder through the internet, not knowing what's in it, not knowing who's sending it. And you fast forward to 2023 and it's me, you know, mm -hmm. a decade later, I'm the one doing that, me and everybody else. And so, you know, that business pivoted to an online location and, and was able to, you know, to really get the opportunity to grow that way. But it is very true that if, if you're not constantly looking at things, you can get caught on the backside in any business, you know, no matter how innovative or, or uninnovative it may seem, every business has to evolve. And so last question for you, I've, I've learned so much. I feel like I am, am getting my MBA inadvertently <laughs> through you again. And so kind of jogging my memory, I do feel like I might have been sold short on a few things after listening to you speak about Aww. this. So I would love to know what is your personal and compelling reason for educating others? So when you think about calling, uh, you know, I always knew I wanted to help people. So uh, going all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, I thought it was through medicine because I love to help people. And I like to see people succeed. I like to see good people, ethical people do great things for others. And if I can, in any small shape or form, in small way, you know, modicum of, of, of any effort have an impact on that, I find personal fulfillment with that. So, you know, I still have tons of my students from 20 years ago that I'm in contact with. I follow a lot of them on LinkedIn. And when they have a new job or, you know, a promotion, whatever. I get excited about that because I knew that person and, and maybe I helped them in some small way, even if it was just one thing that they remembered from my class. And that is personal fulfillment for me. And so I, I feel like I have found my calling in, in the sense of I want to sit back after I've, I've given some advice that hopefully will help somebody. And if that that helps them be successful and happy in their career, then that's at the end of my life, I can say I fulfilled my calling and that's, that's been cool for me. So. Well, I can say that I've made something <laughs> based on your advice and I've saved some money on your advice <laughs> and I did get an A in that class also. <laughs> and, you, and you earned an A. Let me just explain that. You earned it. You were, you were a great student. So. Well, thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And this was fantastic. I'm so appreciative of you taking the time. And I know 
that our listeners will also just love this episode. So thank you so much. We appreciate you. Well, thank you so much for having me. And like I said, it's always great to connect with someone from, from my classes and my past. And, and again, very proud of you, Jamie. Uh, you're, you're one that I follow on LinkedIn. So I've got to kind of follow your career too. So congratulations on all your success. I appreciate you. Thank you. So if you'd like to learn more about franchising and diversifying your portfolio through franchising, email us at info at franpathconsulting.com. Follow the FranPath Consulting Podcast on Apple or Spotify. Please rate and review us five stars. You can also follow us on Instagram at FranPath, Facebook and LinkedIn at FranPath Consulting, or go to our website, franpathconsulting.com, to take your free business assessment. Mm-hmm.